So this morning we will be in uh, we will be in Colossians, Colossians chapter one, and the uh, text that we'll be looking at specifically will be Colossians chapter one verses twenty one to twenty three. If you want to turn with me there in your Bibles. And we will be looking at the message of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? What have we been reconciled f- from to what we have been reconciled to? And I've simply titled my message, Reconciled to God. So in the, in the text this morning, from verses 21 to 23, I want to show you four realities about God reconciling Reconciling us to him. In verse 21, we'll look at man's predicament, the awful predicament that man finds himself in. In verse 22, how Christ is the solution to our predicament. And verse 22 as well, the internal realities of someone who is reconciled to God. And then in verse 23, also the external evidences of someone who is reconciled. So before we start reading, let's, uh, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time together here this morning. Father, I come before you and I, and I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for what you have done on the cross, Lord, to reconcile a people to yourself. I pray, God, that uh, your word would go forth this morning. May we be true to your word. And I pray that... Uh, that Jesus may be big in our service this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, number one, if you're taking notes, man's predicament. Number two, Christ is the solution. Number three, the internal realities of a reconciled person. And number four, the external evidences of a reconciled person. So let's read Colossians chapter 1. We'll actually start in verse 19. So let's start in verse 19. We'll go down through verse 23. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So notice how in verse 20, Paul starts the conversation of reconciliation. And that uh, Jesus is the reconciler, and he will one day reconcile all of creation to himself. And I talked about this a little bit in my last sermon a few months ago. Um, so I'll just have a quick look at this again. And this reconciliation of all things and earth and heaven in verse 20 is not speaking of some kind of universal salvation. It is not saying that one day every person will be saved. The idea of universal salvation is completely foreign to scriptures. And even here in the book of Colossians in chapter 2 verse 15, Paul writes that the rulers and authorities are disarmed and they are put to open shame and Christ will triumph over them. These demonic forces were not saved nor redeemed by Christ, but they were vanquished by Christ. Clearly, a universal salvation of all things under heaven and earth is not in view here. But God cursed all of creation because of sin, thereby disrupting the relationship between the creator and his creation. 
And in order for two parties to be reconciled, there first must be a broken relationship. And all of creation is an open rebellion against its creator, including mankind. And sin destroyed the harmony in nature between creatures. And man still has a mandate to subdue the earth, the Bible teaches, but creation frustrates this effort. And sin causes thorns and thistles to choke the ground. God told Adam, in pain you shall eat of it. So it is a cosmic renewal that is in view here and not a cosmic redemption. A cosmic renewal and not a cosmic redemption. Creation will one day be renewed and it will no longer frustrate man. Thorns and thistles will no longer choke the ground. The lion will once again eat with the lamb. Sickness and death will no longer rule the day. And we will be in the presence of our creator. And yet on earth at this time, all of mankind is in a terrible predicament. It is a situation that is completely out of our control. We were born into sin. This sin reigns inside of us and it controls us like a bit controls a horse, pulling us around to do its bidding. We are born spiritually dead. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. Therefore, Paul in Colossians verse 21, shifts focus and turns the conversation from reconciliation of creation to man's need of reconciliation as part of this creation. So Paul shifts here and turns the conversation again from the reconciliation of creation to man's need of reconciliation as part of creation. You see, man was born into this terrible predicament, yet thankfully that predicament does not come without a solution. And that solution is found only in the one true God whom Paul exalted as the preeminent ruler in verses 15 to 20, being Jesus Christ, and thereby proclaiming Christ fully sufficient for the task of reconciliation. Not only the task of redeeming, but also the task of sanctifying those whom he has redeemed. He has redeemed them for a purpose, and that is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is the end goal of our salvation, is to be transformed into the image of Christ. And that is a process that we find in these verses in our text this morning. From our need to redemption, to the, to the purpose for which we were redeemed, all of which is provided by an all-sufficient Savior. Verse 21 in Colossians chapter 1 reads, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And here we find the reality of man's predicament. And Paul refers here back to the Colossians' condition that they found themselves in before coming to Christ, before being saved. And you, he says, the phrase seems to drive home the point that no one, no one is excluded from what he is saying. No one is exempt from what he is about to say because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this popular verse found in Romans 3.23 is not just a standalone verse with a shallow, generalized meaning. That verse summarizes everything that comes before it in Romans chapter 1 to 3. And everyone falls into that category. If we read Romans 3.23, it's a good idea to go back and read the first three chapters so that we can see what it means that we fall short of the glory of God, that all have sinned. A quick summary of Romans 1 to 3 describes mankind as this. Suppressing the truth without excuse. Lustful, impure, and dishonorable. Idolaters. Not acknowledging God, having a debased mind, deserving to die, under the wrath of God, not seeking for God, having turned aside and become worthless, 
full of cursing and bitterness, swift to shed blood, and perhaps the most fearful of all, no fear of God. Then after being described in this manner, Paul declares in verse 23 of chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that every one of us were in that category at one time. In Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul describes his hearers in a similar fashion. He says they were alienated, hostile in mind, and evildoers. Life prior to Christ is bleak and without any hope. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We have no hope without Without God. John Owen said in his book Communion with Communion, in his book Communion with God, and I quote, Because of sin, no man in his natural state has fellowship with God. God is light, and we are darkness. What communion has light with darkness? God is life, we are dead. God is love, we are enmity. So what agreement can there be between God and man? Men in such a condition do not have Christ, and they are without hope and without God in the world. They are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Two cannot walk together unless they agree with each other. Whilst there is this great distance between God and man, there can be no walking together in fellowship or communion. Our first relationship with God was so lost by sin that there was no possibility in ourselves of any return to God." Ephesians 2 verse 1 declares mankind as a dead and in trespasses and sin. The problem isn't that we were merely broken and sick and with God's help we can fix ourselves. The problem is mankind is dead and completely separated from God who is life. We aren't floating in the water barely hanging on to life waiting for a life raft to be thrown to us by God so we can be saved. A dead person cannot grab onto a life raft. We were dead at the bottom of the lake. God had to come down and breathe life into us. We suffer the same consequences as Adam, spiritual death and alienation from God. This is the situation all men are born into. Unbelievers do not belong to God and do not enjoy the sweet communion with Him as believers do. Not only are unbelievers alienated, but they are hostile in mind. They have an angry, unfriendly attitude towards God. They are enmity and directly oppose God. Romans 3 declares there's none who seeks after God and all have turned aside. And this attitude comes from deep within our sin nature. It is an attitude of active defiance. Unbelievers hate God. They resent Him and His holy standard. Mankind is so filled with pride that they refuse to acknowledge the fact that Christ met God's perfect standard because no one else could. They hate God because their evil deeds have been exposed. And if we turn to John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, we read this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his work should be exposed. You see, it's popular today to believe unbelievers are merely confused about who God really is. The Bible, however, tells a far different story. Unconverted people hate the God of the Bible. Surely there are those who seem confused or indifferent and who certainly claim to not actually hate God. But when pressed on the matter in regards to the true God of the Bible, we find that they really hate Him. They may be indifferent to the God they have created in their minds, who they believe God to be, but when they come to know the true God of the Bible, there is nothing but hostility. Because that person has made themselves a standard. They've made themselves a standard of who they believe God should be. What they believe to be moral is what God should also believe to be moral. What they should tolerate, what they tolerate, God also should tolerate. So the unbeliever, and yes, even some believers, idolize themselves so much that they believe the only God worthy of worship is the one that they have made in their own image, instead of realizing that they were made in God's image. Let's turn to Psalm 50, verse 16. Psalm 50, verse 6, starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You see, God is not like us. And people will never stop worshiping. They either worship God or they will worship the God of self and the God they have made in their own mind, the God and the image of self. Flip back to the New Testament to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These verses show how bound we truly are by our sin nature. Our flesh and our minds are so hostile to God that it cannot even submit to God's law. And the person in this predicament cannot please God. And we are doing evil deeds constantly. The prophet declares even our greatest works to be like filthy rags before the Lord. When it comes to sin and evil deeds, God is not the tolerant but benevolent grandfather as some make him out to be. The Bible teaches his wrath is stored up against sin. And those who oppose him and act in open rebellion and hostility towards him. In John chapter 3, verse 36, John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a terrible situation that we find ourselves in, that mankind finds itself in. It is not only the situation of the Colossians prior to conversion, but it affects all of mankind. God's holy standard cannot be met by anything any person has to offer. 
We are sinful creatures standing before a holy God. There is nothing we can offer God. And we find in and of ourselves we are completely without hope in the world of ever being reconciled. There is something that stands in our way of reconciliation. It is God's wrath. It is impossible to be reconciled as long as his wrath remains unappeased. His wrath must be satisfied in order for reconciliation to take place because God is a just judge, and a just judge cannot let a sinner go free. We find an example in, a, in, a, in a, the judge in a human court of law. If a judge in a human court of law would let a lawbreaker go free, that judge would be unjust and he would lose his position as a judge. Therefore, God must punish sin or he too would be unjust. And since God must punish sin, our predicament seems completely hopeless. And yet, there is a solution. That answer is found only in the person and work, in person and work of Jesus Christ. Not in our works, but his works. Colossians 1 verse 22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And we find the second reality here that Christ is the solution to mankind's awful predicament. Only Jesus Christ was able to keep God's perfect holy standard. And if today you trust in the Christ of scriptures for salvation, then rejoice. For he has kept the holy standard for you, and you longer, no longer need to despair that the standard, God's holy standard, is impossible to keep. The wrath of God has been diverted for you. It has not been stopped, for your sin must still be paid for. But it has been diverted from you to Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. If you are a believer, are you not thankful? But if you are unsaved, then his wrath remains undiverted. Sin is still your problem, and sin is still separating you from God. Because God cannot look at sin or be in the presence of sin, it is sin that must first be dealt with. Sin is the root of man's alienation with God. 1 John 1.6 says, If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But for the believer, sin has been dealt with. For in his body of flesh, by his death, Christ suffered physically as God's wrath was poured upon him for your sins. The sins you committed in your youth, the sins you committed yesterday, the sins you will commit today. And by his death, you are delivered from God's wrath. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It's such a great portion of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are saved by him from the wrath of God. So we are saved by God from God. Then turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, we see it is Jesus who, is, who delivers us from God's wrath. <clears throat> 
And as Paul already demonstrated to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, this Jesus, the one who delivers us, is the supreme ruler of the universe, and by nature he is God. Therefore Christ is fully sufficient for this work of reconciliation. Nothing needs to be added, nor can anything be added to him. The false teachers plaguing the Colossian church have been arguing that Christ was not actually sufficient. And they were trying to persuade the people to rely on traditions and visions and angels and so on, as we read in chapter 2. Yet only in the body of the flesh of the Son of God could reconciliation be accomplished, and nothing can be added. Jesus plus, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, and nothing plus Jesus equals everything. Jesus was fully sufficient to accomplish this reconciliation by his death. And to be reconciled means to restore friendly relations. It means to have peace when there once was no peace. It means that enmity no longer exists between reconciled parties. When hostility is removed and offenses are forgiven, that is when reconciliation happens. It is the opposite of being separated and alienated. People who are not reconciled are far apart and in unfriendly relationships, while reconciled people are close together and show friendships towards each other. Yet, as we have already seen, the relationship between God and man is so broken that man voluntarily refuses to submit to God. There is no good-natured move of affection towards him by us to try and restore our relationship with a holy God because the Bible says that none seek after him and all have turned aside. Our only action towards him was not of friendliness but of hostility. We did not affectionately try to spark this reconciliation as if God just needed a spark from us in order for him to light the fire of reconciliation. Romans chapter 5 says that while, while we were enemies, while we were hostile in nature to God, God reached down and reconciled us. Jesus said that no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Thankfully, Thankfully, we need to be so thankful that God does not need our help in reconciling us. We love because he first loved us. And that is the glorious news of the gospel. You can't, so Jesus did. Let's read Romans 5, verse 10. Let's go back to Romans 5, where we were before, and let's just read verse 10 as well. Starting in verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies, while we were the person described in our text in verse, one, in verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, while we were hostile, alienated, and doing evil deeds, as the commentator describes, in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy but becomes his friend. We see this again in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. We read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is God alone who reconciles because it is the fullness of God alone who resides in the one who does the work of reconciliation. 
To look for reconciliation anywhere other than Christ and his work is to admit through our actions that Christ is not, in fact, the perfect Savior. God does not share his glory. The Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And reading Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, it shows us to be reconciled is to be saved. To be saved from God, or to be saved by God from God. Let's look at another great verse on reconciliation. And this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, became, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great portion of Scripture that is. All this is from God. And we find some great details regarding reconciliation here. We find that it is God alone who reconciles. And once he has reconciled someone, with that person receives the ministry of reconciliation. And that person has been entrusted. That person has been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. If you are saved, then you are an ambassador or a representative of Christ heralding the good news of Christ. Think about this. God is making his appeal to the entire world through his children. It is now the duty of the children to go, uh, it is now the duty of God, um, sorry, it is now the duty of the children of God to implore people to be reconciled to God. And this message of reconciliation is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16 says, says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The message of the gospel is what God uses to reconcile people to himself. And you, Christian, and I are to be his ambassadors to the world. It is not our job to save people. That is Christ's job. It is our job to spread the message of reconciliation through which Christ will save his people, all whom are brought to a saving faith, all who repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through reconciliation, God changes our relationship with him from alienated to reconciled, from hostility to holiness, from doing evil deeds to being above reproach and blameless. It is God who changes us. Look again at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, we made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here we find the message of reconciliation, that he took our sin and he laid them on Christ, and he punished Christ for your evil deeds. And he took the righteousness of Christ and laid it on you, so that when God now looks at you, he no, he no longer sees your sin. 
but he sees Christ. He no, long, he no longer sees your evil deeds and your hostility, but he sees you as holy. He sees you as above reproach because Christ was above reproach. And he sees you as blameless because Christ was blameless. He sees not what you can do for him, but he sees what Christ has done for you. Think about what he has invested to bring his people to salvation. And thankfully, he will fight for you for his glory. He will chasten you for his glory. He will sanctify you for his glory. He will perform a work in you for his glory. And if you are a believer, he will delight in you for his glory. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God rejoices and delights in those who are his. So if you have not repented today and put your trust in Christ, I urge you, I implore you to do so. And God does these things in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here we find the third conclusion that man, the man who is reconciled has certain internal realities. There is an internal reality to the reconciled person. The condition of the Colossian believers, and yes, all believers, stands in stark contrast to the condition prior to reconciliation. Prior to salvation, man's predicament seems completely hopeless. And yet, in a seamless contrast, we see that man's predicament after salvation is perfectly full of hope. Think about what Christ has done to redeem us, that Christ gave his life for our transformation. And we can see why the Bible also teaches that he is then committed. Yes, Christ is committed to seeing what he started through to the end. Reconciliation results in us being holy, physically pure, and morally blameless. This holiness is for all believers. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The term holy in the original language is also often translated as saints. And it means holy ones. Christians are destined to be transformed into the image of Christ. And as the holy ones of God, we are destined to be transformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. But how can people, even though they may be born again, be considered holy when we will never actually be perfect on this side of eternity? After After all, holy actually means to be perfect. And yet we will never actually be perfect this side of eternity. But look closely at the language that the New Testament used. And this is why the Bible uses the term of being in Christ. And this holiness isn't inherently a part of us, but it is a result of us being in Christ because it is Christ's holiness that we claim as our holiness. And it is a part of the union we enjoy with him. Being in Christ, it is his holiness that we have received. And it is the same way with blameless and above reproach, which must come part and parcel with holiness. Christ died in order to present us us blameless 
and above reproach. Faultless, without blemish or spot, completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And this is the eternal reality of the person who has been reconciled to God in Christ. We stand unaccused and we stand beyond criticism before a holy God. And the only way we were able to stand before him in this way is because we are in Christ. We are in the one whom we are reconciled as believers. And we are now blameless and beyond reproach. It is as 2 Corinthians 5.21 described that we received his righteousness. We received everything that he did right. We received his rightness. And he took on himself everything that we did wrong. And we now stand unaccused because God looks at us as though we live Christ's life and God treated Christ as though he had lived your life. Satan may be the accuser, but he cannot make any charge stick against God's elect. He may point his finger and accuse, accuse you before God. This person lied. This person stole. This person one time committed adultery and murder in his heart. Yet God's response is, my son, the one who died on the cross, did none of those things. And his spotless blood has covered your sins. No sin is greater than the grace of God. And this is the internal reality, the internal transformation from hostility to holiness. And this is the goal of every Christian life. And although we fully rely on Christ's holiness as our own for justification, and and as we stand before God, we are also still growing and being sanctified in personal character. Although God looks at us now and he sees a holy creature, a new creation, that does not mean that we live a perfect life. This transformation will never fully be complete in this side of eternity. Internally, yes, but externally, we are still striving for holiness and personal character. As the Reformer said, this holiness is nothing more than begun in us and is indeed every day making progress, but it will not be perfected until Christ shall appear for the restoration of all things. So we do claim Christ's holiness in full through justification, yet at the same time, personal holiness is also something we strive for as believers. And we should desire to reflect Christ in all our actions and in in our thoughts. So take heart. There is no believer that God is not doing a work in. There is no believer that God is not working to make holy and blameless inside and out. None of us who are saved should ever despair that he will not discipline and purify us fully and finally. The internal reality is that we have been renewed and we now love God. We seek to obey him out of love and reverent fear where before we were hostile towards him. And this brings us to verse 23 in Colossians chapter 1. We saw so far that man's predicament. We saw Christ as a solution. We just looked at the internal realities of a reconciled man. In Colossians 1 verse 23 we read, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So our fourth and our final reality is the external evidence of a reconciled life. The external evidence of a reconciled life. So there, we do not only have these internal realities, there's not only the internal reality, but we, have the, we should have the external evidence of that internal reality. 
It certainly stands to reason that anyone who has been transformed on the inside and received the righteousness of Christ will also be transformed on the outside. For where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. And if we look closely at verse 23, we sometimes, we, we hear that the term if indeed is sometimes taken as a condition of salvation, which is then used as evidence that a person can in fact lose their salvation. But let's reflect back on the verses that we have just gone through and understand that up to this point, it is all Christ's work. And if we even look at verse 22 in Colossians chapter 1, In verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he has now. That is past tense. That is something that is a reality for a believer, something that has happened already. To be reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless. That is something that will happen in the future. One day we will stand before God and we will be presented before him holy and blameless. There is an unbroken line here between what has happened, being reconciled, and one day standing before God, being presented holy and blameless before you, before him. So if we reflect back on that verse just in and of itself, we, have just, we understand that up to this point it is all Christ's work. It is due to his work that God calls us blameless and above reproach in verse 22. So if then, if we could somehow void his work, and then his work would have failed. And he is not the all-powerful God that Paul describes him as in verses 15 to 20. Romans chapter 8 tells us we were predestined to be transformed into the image of Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That literally means for the believer, it was determined beforehand that they would be transformed into the Christ image. Romans 8 continues from there in verse 30 and declares that all of those who have been saved will one day be glorified. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So get this. This is so important. If this promise of future glorification cannot be, cannot be trusted, then neither could we ever trust God's promise of justification. The evidence of those who have been truly justified and reconciled will be that they will indeed continue in the faith. Indeed, it is even God who gives us this faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, or the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, it is, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God, God himself is the source of our faith, and true believers will indeed continue in the faith. They will persevere, persist, and pursue the object of their faith. The phrase found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and not shifting from, point to something very specific. It is not some general sense where if you start sinning, you could lose your salvation. It is actually specifically pointing to something that all believers have in common, and it is this. It is the hope of the gospel. We are not to shift from the hope of the gospel. This is what we need to be continue in faith in. To be stable and steadfast means to have a firm foundation in something. It is, the hope, it is the hope of the gospel that we need to have a firm foundation in. 
Anyone who does not have this hope is an unbeliever. This hope is the evidence of our belief. This hope is what the believer continues in. Verse 23 is not telling believers what to do, but a describer, it is describing what believers actually do. Verse 23 is speaking nothing more than a mature Christian is presented before God. If we look down just a couple verses to verse 28 in Colossians chapter, 20, Colossians chapter 1, in verse 28, Paul basically says the same thing, but he says it in a little bit of a different way. In verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So in, chap- in verse 28, he says he is, he is giving a warning. So the question may then be asked, if Christians can't lose their salvation, why does God seem to give a warning? And I believe there are two reasons why God gives warnings. And we'll look at these two reasons. Um, as we already saw, that the glorification is the end goal for the Christian. And it has already been promised in Romans chapter 8. And God cannot break his promises. But God still uses warnings as the means to that end. The end being the promise that he has already given. He uses warnings as the means to the promise, to the me, as a means to the end, and to accomplish his purposes. Turn with me to Acts chapter 27, verse 21, and here we see a, a, an example of a promise made and then a warning given as the means to keeping that promise. So in Acts chapter 27, verse 21, and here's a, a, an example of a promise followed by a warning. Starting in verse 21, we'll read down to verse 32. Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. There's the promise. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. The promise repeated. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Verse 27, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the docks, or run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, and here we have the warning, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So first God promises that no one will perish. But then, after the promise is made, a warning is given that unless the men stay in the boat, they cannot be saved. So if God had already promised, then why does he give a warning? We know God cannot lie, so after he had given the promise, it should have been impossible for anyone to perish after the promise was given. After the promise 
of salvation from the storm was given. But God used the warning to fulfill His promise, just as God uses warnings to fulfill the promise of future glorification. So God uses warnings as a means to securely keep His children. So that's the first, first reason why God uses warnings. Another use for warnings is to also convict people who believe themselves to be saved. So the first one is that God uses warnings to accomplish the, the, uh, His purposes. And the second one is to convict people who may believe themselves to be saved, to examine themselves to see if they are truly saved. And a perfect example of this is found, if you want to turn with me there, to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we, in verse 14, we see the same warning of if indeed, followed by an exhortation to continue to the end very similar to the way Colossians does. Yet in verse 12, the writer is speaking of someone with an unbelieving heart. I know of no believers with an unbelieving heart. Believers do not have an unbelieving heart that is evil. And the person in the text who was hardened toward God was never a believer to begin with. It is a warning to examine ourselves to make sure that we do not have an unbelieving heart. People with unbelieving hearts are called unbelievers. People with believing hearts are called believers. And the test of not having an unbelieving heart is seen in the phrase, holding our confidence firm to the end. Or as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, continuing in the hope of the gospel. This is what believers do. They hold their confidence firm to the end, and they continue in the hope of the gospel. Someone who does not do these things, it has been revealed to them that they have an evil, unbelieving heart. This warning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, is quite proper considering the context of the false teachings the Colossians were being persuaded with in chapter 2. And Paul is exhorting them to hold fast to what they were taught. Do not be easily swayed, he says. So we see that warnings serve these two great purposes, to accomplish God's purposes and to cause people to examine themselves. There are many other verses of warnings in scriptures, but uh, I don't think we'll look at them today. But they serve the same purposes. But unfortunately and sadly, not everyone who professes faith in Christ has been genuinely saved. And that is why these warnings serve such a great purpose. Jesus himself warned about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." 
So the Bible certainly mentions many different marks of the true believer, but none as significant as this one, that the one that those who are genuinely saved will continue in the faith, and those who are not genuinely saved will eventually be found out. You don't have to uh, turn with me, but let's have a quick look at a few other passages of Scripture that speaks about this, that those who are not genuinely saved will eventually be found out. Luke 8, verse 13 says, The seed with no root believes for a while, then in time of temptation falls away. This is a belief that has no root of itself. John 8.31, if you abide, if you abide in my word, then you truly are my disciples. And perhaps the most clear of all, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we will see that eventually those who do not have a true belief in God will eventually leave the fellowship of the saints, those who are not genuinely converted. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, so if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be claim, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In John 6, verse 66, we read that many left Jesus after enduring some especially hard teachings of Christ. And this showed that they were never truly his disciples to begin with. So then, back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, as it explains that we are blameless, holy, and above reproach because we are in Christ, then because we are in Christ, then he is also the one who keeps us. Being in him means we are guarded and protected by him. And I think this is a great... The, the Paul and, and the story of the, of the shipwreck is a great illustration of this. Being in him means that we are guarded and protected by him, just like Paul and the crew on that ship. God sovereignly promises the sailors protection. God puts the responsibility on man to stay in the boat with a warning. Then as the boat is dashed to pieces and the sailors eventually all fall in the water, God sovereignly protects guards, and keeps each sailor. God commands us to obey. Then by His Spirit, He makes it possible for us to obey. Just as we sometimes fall in our Christian life, as we fall in our Christian walk, and as we, we, we fail and we, we sin, it is God who chastens us. He disciplines us, the Bible tells us, to bring us back to Himself. It is all God. So let's look at a couple of verses then now, if you want to maybe follow along with this, how it is God who keeps us. Let's look at a couple of verses about how it is God who keeps us. First one is 1 Peter 1, verse 3, starting in verse 3. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it was God who made us born again to the living hope that we are continuing in, in Colossians 1, verse 23, 
Remember, Colossians 1.23 also speaks of this living hope. And Peter speaks of the same living hope. This living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven. It is kept in heaven for you. Not only that, but you are guarded towards this living hope, not by your power, not by my power, but by God's power. Flip over to Philippians 1 verse 6. Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he, that being Jesus, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as at the day of the Jesus Christ. So we see two things here that Jesus does. First, he began a good work. It is he that began it. And secondly, it is him that will bring it to completion. Christ began it and Christ will complete it. Since he is the one who started it without any help from us, he will also finish it. Colossians, let's go back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 4. Since we have heard, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, this is again the same language that, that Peter uses when he says that this hope is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Is the same language again. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So this hope is sure because it is already laid up in heaven for you. It is reserved there and it cannot perish, just like Peter says. Let's jump forward to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ. And the next verse says that Christ is our life. Not only is your life hidden in Christ, Christ is our life. And then back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. I'll jump back and forth here a couple times. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. And this is right before the, our text here today. May you be strengthened with all power, according to what? According to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We see here, only a few verses above our text, how our strength to endure in the faith comes not from our own power, but it is from God's power. Paul already spoke of enduring by God's power and not our own. In verse 11. Now let's jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And then let's just jump over, lastly, to Jude, the book of Jude, verse 1. Jude, verse 1, a servant, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then down to verse 24. And Jude, Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless from the presence of his glory with great joy. So if we fail to endure or to continue in the faith, then we have not had God's power to begin with. Because it is God who cannot fail. Because it is God who keeps us by his power. It's John MacArthur who said the reason Christians are going to heaven is not because they hold on, because it is Christ who holds on. So saints are those who finally persevere and endure in Christ. Continuing in the faith is the test of reality for the true believer. The one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the service of the king. Now to be clear, we must understand that biblical perseverance is not the term that we often hear, once saved, always saved, the teaching that puts hope for salvation in a person's decision. If they one time chose to decide or decided to follow Christ. Biblical perseverance does not put our hope for salvation in that decision itself. Once saved, always saved implies that. That it puts hope and salvation for a person's decision or a person's work. But biblical perseverance puts hope not in the person's work, but in Christ's work. What Christ has done. Not on what we have done at one point in our life. But what Christ has done and what Christ continues to do in our life. On the outside, the difference between biblical perseverance and once saved, always saved may seem similar. But in reality, they are actually vastly different. Usually the term once saved, always saved points to a particular moment when someone made a decision and that decision can never be altered no matter how that person lives after and that is completely false and unbiblical. The hope is put in the person's decision instead of what Christ has done. While biblical perseverance, on the other hand, is the person relying on the work of Christ to persevere to the end because it is Christ who perseveres and keeps us. It is relying on Christ's work to conform and transform the believer over the course of their life into the image of Christ, to create a new creature from the old. Biblical perseverance is actually growing in holiness and faith. It is not living like the world while still claiming to be saved. It is, in fact, the opposite of what is usually meant by once saved, always saved. A true born-again believer does not lose their salvation, but it is not because the hope of that salvation is placed on what I have done at one point in my life. The hope of that eternal security is based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And all those verses that we just read about how over and over and over again it is Jesus Christ who saves us, and not only saves us, but it's Jesus Christ who keeps us. And all true believers will one day they will endure and persevere to the end, not based on what we do, but based on God's power to justify, to regenerate and sanctify the believer and to conform them into the image of Christ throughout their life. 
looking at verse 23 again, when we see in Colossians chapter 1, where we see the hope of the gospel, it is the hope of the gospel where we need this firm foundation. It is the hope of the gospel that we endure in. And that has been proclaimed, verse 23 reads, that has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven of which Paul is a minister. The gospel is the object of the Christian's hope. This hope is sure because it relies upon something outside of ourselves. It relies upon Christ and what he has done, not what we can do. Understanding this gives us this inward sense of hope as well, and to have an attitude of hope. And Paul exhorts the Colossian church to hold fast to this hope, that he is a minister of this hope. And they were taught of this hope by Epaphras. And this is the hope that the false teachers in chapter 2 were not continuing in. And they were therefore adding to Christ. And anyone who preaches any gospel other than the one Paul was commissioned to preach stands cursed before God. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In conclusion, this morning we have looked at four different realities concerning true reconciliation between God and man. We have looked at man's predicament. We've seen Christ as the solution. We've seen man reconciled and the internal realities of that. And we have seen the external evidences of that internal reality. So in closing, let me ask you, do you bear the evidence of true conversion? Have you been transformed from hostile enemy to friend? Is God through Jesus Christ, working in your life. It does not mean that we will live a perfect life. and does not mean that we are at the same spot, that we are all at the same place in our Christian walk, and that we all have the same expression of our Christian faith and how we live out our Christian faith. That is not what it means. But do we love God? Do we love His Word? As the series that Pastor Mike has been going through in the Beatitudes, are we peacemakers? Do we understand that Christ has died for our sins? Have we repented and believed? Do we love the true God of the Bible, to whom belongs all the honor and the glory? Do we remain steadfast or sure, or or like the Colossi false teachers, follow after every wind of doctrine? Has the sure hope of the gospel provided you with an inward attitude of hope? As 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Let us examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? If we are saved, let us rejoice today in the mercy and grace of God. And if we are not genuinely converted, take heed to the warnings in Scripture. Call upon the name of the Lord. He has promised that all those who come to him will never be turned away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, that your word is sure, that your word is true, just as you are. We thank you, God, that your word mediates to us your intentions and your desires. May we bring to you all the glory that is deserving of you, Lord, for, for saving us, for continuing to save us, God, for, for keeping us by your power. Help us, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to sanctify us by the washing of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.